Welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I have a very special guest, one of the creators of the Kubernetes project, Joe Bita. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I, I want to thank you for coming on. I've honestly wanted to ask you to be on the show for quite a while, and I guess I had some imposter syndrome or something and, and hadn't reached out. And when I did, you were very quick to say yes and very gracious. So uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Well, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, one of the things that I love about the community is that ability to be connected to folks. And um, there's so many times where folks are sort of, you know, behind these walls and, and my entire career, I've been breaking down those walls, um, even when I was early days at Microsoft working on platforms there. And so, yeah, I, I really enjoy doing stuff like this when I can really, really connect with folks. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, to me, this uh, podcast really is about the community, you know, and trying to get to know the people who are who are doing things that help us all. So uh, you you are definitely part of that group. So I uh, usually do listener questions at the end, but um, I had one that I wanted to get to right off the bat. Um, your Twitter profile says that you're semi-retired. And Bill Mulligan asked um, if he's only semi-retired, what is he doing with the not retired part? <laughs> I don't know yet. So I'm still, you know, so for those who don't follow my every move, um, you know, my history is we, you know, started Kubernetes at Google. I took some time off then to explore what was next and ended up starting a company called Heptio. Uh, we, we were in business for a couple of years and then um, got an offer to join VMware. So we ended up selling the company there. And uh, just recently left VMware, so I'm a I'm a couple of a uh, couple of months out, um, still figuring out what it means to me. Been spending a lot of time with the kids, and my my parents are aging too, and so um, it's been good to have less distractions as I do that. And the the truth of it is, is that you know I was pretty burned out when I left VMware, and so for those first couple of months, I honestly couldn't see a computer, and like you know I'd watch TV on my wow. iPad. But the reality is, is that, you know, I went from spending, you know, eight plus hours a day here in my office at home to being like, you know, the plants are dying because I'm not watering them because I'm not down here. Um, I'm starting to get past that. And I think, you know, uh, uh, going to KubeCon in Detroit was really great because it reconnected me with the community, saw some of what folks are doing, you know, saw some places where I can start some conversations. And I don't know why I'm doing it yet, and I don't know what it's going to turn into, but there's a certain sort of satisfaction being able to chase things that I find interesting, even if I don't understand how that might relate to a business or where it might lead to. And so, you know, I think right now I'm just kind of following my nose and figuring out what's interesting to me. Well, the people that I've talked to, I've had conversations with a few friends where it came up that you're um, retired or semi-retired and we all have been in agreement that you deserve some time off because <laughs> um, you've obviously worked really hard and contributed a ton to um, how we all do our jobs. You know, um, I'm one of those people who's in a situation where I'm working for a Kubernetes vendor. You know, uh, my job maybe doesn't exist if it wasn't for the work you all did. You know, back in 2014, 2015. You know, back then. So um, we all, I think, owe you and Brendan and. Craig and everyone else, you know, involved like a lot of thanks. Um, you mentioned KubeCon. Um, 
What was your feeling being there as somebody who's not like working at a Kubernetes vendor? You know, I have complicated feelings about KubeCon and every time I go to one, it's honestly an emotional roller coaster for me. Um, I tend to find that I get the most out of, you know, the first couple of days before KubeCon. And so especially the contributor summit there is really a great opportunity to reconnect with folks, see old friends and, and also like look around and go like, I don't know a lot of these people. And that's actually awesome. What that means is that there's still new folks that feel a sense of ownership around the project and are taking up leadership positions and stuff. So for me, that's really invigorating to be able to do that. Um, on the other hand, you know, you walk the show floor and it's, you know, it's a vendor fest and that's not the stuff that draws me to it. I think it's, 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 it's a necessary part of being able to support the larger community, but there's always sort of that, that product versus project push pull that I, I think, you know, we all sort of deal with. Um, I did enjoy not having like a lot of times for somebody like me, I go to KubeCon, I get scheduled with meeting with customers and, you know, potential customers and, you know, working the booth. And so you're, you're, you're taking both that commercial and responsibilities on the commercial side and on the community side, um, not having to do that stuff was nice and made it a, a more enjoyable and relaxing experience. And then finally, like, you know, there's always a challenge when you see people like say at keynotes or talks. And they're talking about something and you want to be like, you're wrong. That's not the way it should work. Right. <laughs> and I think, you know, as engineers, we all look at this and like somebody's wrong on the internet. I must correct it. I think one of the challenges again, around sort of supporting this community is, is recognizing that not everybody's going to do it the way I would have, and that's okay. Yeah. And so, you know, you thanked me and Brendan and, and Craig for starting this, but the reality is this thing has taken on a life of its own. And, and I think part of making it successful is, you know, letting it launch, letting people make mistakes, even if uh, maybe they're not mistakes, because, you know, I'm not om omniscient. So that's always a real challenge also, you know, at, at KubeCon to, to sit there in the audience and keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. I mean, I think that like, that's an important part of leadership, right? To be able to step back and let people you know, have some agency and do things the way they want to do them. Because if you do speak up, you know, you as one of the people who's seen as a creator of Kubernetes, if you come out and say, hey, this is all shit, you know, um, you're going to stir up a, a real big mess. Yeah. So I'm always really careful to, you know, to have opinions, but then also be, you know, recognize that, you know, I've been wrong before, <laughs> I'll be wrong again. And Part of the the strength of these communities is that there's so much room for people to try stuff out, even if I personally think it's ill-advised, you know, that's, yeah. that's actually a good thing that folks can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed completely. Yeah. I think that one of the things that's been bothering me, uh, like, I love the CNCF and like, uh, you know, thank you all for what you do, but I do have one big complaint about um, something that's happened over the last few years, which is that the sponsored keynotes are no longer labeled clearly in the schedule. And that really bothers me. Like we used to have that transparency about who was paying for a slot to get up on the stage and speak. And, and that's gone. And you can usually kind of guess, you know, but um, but I don't like it. Yeah, that's something that I, you know, I've brought up to CNCF again and again. And, and you know, the point gets across, but then somehow it gets lost again. And so, um, yeah. You know, and actually understanding where that line between, like I said, project and product or community and commercial, where that sits is, 
you know, is always a difficult and subtle thing in this world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing that I had a hard time with at this KubeCon is that, you know, the, the conference started on Wednesday officially, but on Monday and Tuesday, there were all these mini conferences and these things like I paid, you know, since I was going as myself, I got the early bird. I think I paid $500 to, to attend KubeCon. Um, it would have cost me another $500 to go to one of these mini conferences. Right. And so it kind of, you know, the, the way that that stuff was run kind of fractured some of the opportunities in the community there. And, uh, and also wasn't as, uh, I think, you know, there's some cases where the, the, the project versus product lines were even blurrier in some of those mini conferences, um, you know, in a way that I didn't appreciate. I've given that feedback to the CNCF. I know they're, they're listening and, you know, always trying to improve, but you know, there's, there's always that push pull there that I think we deal with. Yeah, absolutely. This was actually my first time going oh, to really? any of those, those pre-events and I went to the EBPF day. Um, and it was pretty fun and it wasn't just all one vendor, right? Like there were even multiple vendors involved who were giving talks and stuff. And so I thought they did a decent job of balancing that out, but I totally could see how that could, you know, go the wrong way. Yeah. And I think it's pretty uneven with some of these things, how much of it is sort of focused on a single vendor versus how much of it is more community driven. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about your kind of path to, to get to, um, Google. Um, I wonder, I usually start off asking people, um, about their background, like how they got into computers and all of that. I, I have a whole lot of stuff I want to get to with you. So I, I want to see if maybe we could do like a, a, right. a brief version of that. I'll, I'll summarize my career and sort of how it sort of led to Kubernetes as, as yeah, fantastic. I can. Um, my father was a computer programmer. He worked, you know, on, you know, IBM mainframes. And so always grew up with computers in the house. I went to school at Harvey Mudd in, in California thinking I wanted to be uh, an engineer, like a, maybe an electrical or mechanical engineer. But, you know, I, I knew the computer stuff so well, I think I just got lazy and sort of defaulted mm -hmm. into it. Did a couple of internships at Microsoft and then joined Microsoft uh, out of college working on IE. And I think that that had a real impact on me in terms of my career because, you know, even back then and, you know, and, and, and even through the Balmer years, I think there was a true sense that, you know, Microsoft understood platforms and developers in ways that few other companies have. It really is in the DNA. It's in the, it's in the air at Microsoft. Um, and uh, developers, developers, developers. Yeah. And, and this is, the, that... you know, he wasn't wrong, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he, he was jumping around Balmer, but like he wasn't wrong. And so that definitely had an influence on me. And, and then, you know, I, I left Microsoft to join Google worked on everything from Google talk to ads, to, to telephone systems, to, uh, uh, and then cloud stuff. And, you know, through that, I always brought this sort of platform type of thinking to it, even times when Google was kind of allergic to platforms. Um, um, we viewed the early Google talk stuff, basing it on XMPP, all that stuff was really thinking about enabling ecosystems and platforms didn't pan out like that, but like we tried to at least have the underpinnings there. Um, and then that's why cloud was a natural for me also. And so I started the, the Google compute engine project. And at the time, Google thought cloud was a bad business. And so there was a certain amount of, you know, I having a sense that this was something that had huge opportunities and then being able to be out in front of that, um, similar type of thinking led to, to Kubernetes while I was at Google. Um, and so that platform thinking is something that I think permeates my career. 
That's really interesting. Um, I'm behind the times, but I just managed the other night to watch the fantastic Kubernetes documentary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if there are people who haven't seen that, I will put some links into the show notes. It's a two-part thing. It's like an hour total, very much worth watching. And it really got me very nostalgic for that period of time because um, I was you know, in the industry then. I'd been doing operations stuff for many years. Um, I was working in roles where I was kind of embedded with developers, almost like an SRE would be nowadays, and doing like deployments and app configurations and, and troubleshooting problems. And um, there's a thing that Kelsey says that, that really rings true with me, which is that um, we were the schedulers, right? Like we had the spreadsheet of like which service ran on what, you know, host and, and uh, knew all that stuff. And, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I connected with Kubernetes so much, because it almost seemed to be designed for someone who was like specifically in the role that I was in. Yeah, I mean, people are talking about platform engineering teams and all that now, and that was very much the the thinking behind behind Kubernetes was to provide those that you know that that system that up leveled you know power tools for folks who are playing those types of ops roles. Um, another yeah. thing Kelsey said, I don't know if it showed up in the documentary, was that uh, DevOps is group therapy for big companies. <laughs> Richard's like, I've not heard that one, but it's great because what it really goes to show is that, you know, there's a technical side to this, but like so much of this is really about how do we enable new patterns for teams and different disciplines to work together. And that was definitely something that I think was, was, you know, top of mind or we were aware of. I mean, one point on that, on that, um, documentary, I thought it was excellent. I'm glad that they were able to include as many voices as they did when they first pitched it, it was just going to be me and Brendan and Craig. Um, and we were all like, oh no, this is so much bigger than the three of us. <laughs> Even so, you know, I know there's a lot of folks out there that felt like there were, there were aspects and sides to the story that totally got missed. And I, you know, yeah, it makes me sad because I wish we could tell everybody's story, everybody's involvement, but, um, you know, or yeah. squeezing what they could into an hour. I think they did a really good job. Yeah. I mean, I think especially someone coming from the outside, right? Like you're never going to learn all the stories and be able to tell things perfectly. Um, there's this show that I really enjoy about professional wrestling called Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Where they tell, they tell all these stories about crazy stuff that happened in professional wrestling, you know? And it's the same thing. You hear people all the time complaining that, oh, they got this wrong or that wrong, but it's like they can, they're never going to know everything. Um, I can recommend it if you want to check it out sometime. <laughs> awesome. Also, also, if any of those folks are listening um, who feel like their stories weren't told, I'd, I'd love to have you on and chat about it. So feel free to hit me up. Yeah, I think there's definitely podcasts like this are a chance to really sort of, you know, dig into that next level and, and, uh, and, and you know, tell other sides to the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's step back to like 2013. Um, uh, Docker shows up. Um, you all had been doing containers at Kubernetes or at, at Google for how long by that point? Um, oh gosh, I joined Google in 2004 and uh, Borg had existed and they were in the process of moving stuff to Borg. And, you know, the original Google Talk servers stretched Borg in some interesting ways. There were still, you know, places like, say, Search and, you know, Gmail didn't run on shared Borg infrastructure and stuff like that for quite a while. But like, you know, yeah. it had already been going on for, you know, probably almost almost 10 years at that point when Docker came on. But you got to understand the the containers at Google is not what we mean when we say containers today, um, Docker containers. 
there's a lot of similarities, but I, I don't want to downplay the genius of what Solomon and Docker did in terms of being able to to create some some abstractions that made this stuff that much more approachable. And you look at things like, you know, um, you know, BSD jails or LXC or or whatever. Um, yeah, we use solar zones where yeah, I worked. It uses the same underlying, you know, ideas and technology. But I think the 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 fascinating thing that came out of Docker, and I think, you know, we recognize this immediately, and I think it's pretty obvious now, it wasn't necessarily Docker itself, it was the Docker image. This idea that you could have this packaged up artifact that you could then run in a bunch of different places, that didn't exist in the same form at Google, and it didn't exist in things like Zones or LXC or, or BSD Tails. And so that, I think, is, you know, a, a key part of the experience and innovation there that I think a lot of folks gloss over when they say, well, we've been doing this forever. So I, you know, Google was doing it for a long time, but like there was, there were some pleasant surprises as we saw Docker come on the, the scene with this stuff. Yeah. I think on the Linux side that like, you know, obviously those cap some of those capabilities were in the kernel already, but it wasn't, it wasn't like there was an easy way to leverage those things, right? People re really weren't doing it until Docker came out for the most part. Yeah. So, I mean, Google was putting a lot of those things in the kernel and working to upstream them. And, you know, if you talk to somebody like Tim Hawken, um, he was involved with this early project called uh, uh, Let Me Contain This For You. Let Me Contain That For LMCTFY. Not a great name. Um, but that was really about, that was a project trying to show the rest of the Linux community how Google was using these features in the kernel. Because Google was adding these features and people were like, what the heck are you guys doing? Like, how do you use these things? Yeah. Um, and so that project fell by the wayside as Docker became popular because then it was obvious how these features were being used. But but at the time, um, you know, there were there were already efforts to try and, you know, uh, have folks understand how Google was using these technologies. I really haven't seen many other tools show up that have the impact in almost an immediate way that Docker did, just in terms of the excitement that people had about it and and the the ways that it made them see what we're doing differently, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've described it before as, you know, uh, you know, crack for developers. And I, I feel like it really was, you know, everybody was, was so excited. And, um, when I talk to people about developer experience, it's like one of the canonical examples yeah. for me. But I think it also goes to show a little bit the, the, the sort of myo myopia or sort of like specialization that we have in our industry, because I think, you know, you look at something like Node.js or React or, you know, PyTorch, you know, there's, there's in these other domains, whether it be front end or whether it be ML, there's these bombshell projects also that have huge impact. It just goes to show that like for sort of this infrastructure sort of niche that we find ourselves in, you know, Docker is definitely a standout. But even then it was like, um, it got people so excited yeah. and um, the shop that I was at, we didn't end up using it. I moved on to another shop not too long after and the developers all there wanted to use it. And I was the guy saying, hey, hey, wait a second, you know, because um, there's that. Uh, have you seen that? There's a there's an old kind of meme thing where it's a picture of a whiteboard and it's like Docker on your laptop, you know, and then Docker in production. And there's like a list of like three things on the Docker on your laptop <laughs> side. And then on the on the production side, there's like security and storage and like all these other considerations that you don't have. And 
And that was my reaction as an ops person was like, there is so much that we need to do to make this thing production ready. I think, you know, um, that was where I think a lot of the opportunity around Kubernetes actually came into play. Um, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, looking at sort of the point of view that we took with Kubernetes versus the point of view that the Docker folks ended up taking with Swarm, there was a philosophical sort of disagreement there that I think sat at the root of that. Um, we viewed Kubernetes like, you know, my take on it was you go from one machine to many machines and you have to introduce a whole bunch of other concepts and considerations to be able to do it, right? Whereas I think the the idea with Swarm is they wanted to make a bunch of machines just look like one big machine where where folks didn't have to worry about it, which sounds great for developers. But once you start taking into account all these other considerations, you need new concepts, right? And just the idea of 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 a volume, you know, persistent volume in Kubernetes broken out as a first class citizen, obvious to us while we were making Kubernetes, it took a long, long, long time for Docker to get there and make disks or, or volumes be first class citizens with Docker, right? It's yeah. there now, but but it took a long time for them to get there. And I think that's an, an example of of where I think, you know, our our approach with Kubernetes was more grounded in the experiences of what it took to run a production system at Google. And the Red Hat folks early on also brought in a whole bunch of perspective too, for sure. No, that totally makes sense. And I think that like, you know, when I'm talking about them nailing the the user experience, that persona for them was the developer, yeah. right? And and for you, it was more me, right? <laughs> it was more that well, that that person who was trying to deploy workloads and and make sure that they're running and and all of that. I had a Twitter ran on this a little while ago where um I don't like the over-rotation and focus on developers in this world. Um, I much prefer to talk about application teams because that actually talks about both developers and operation folks and all the other disciplines that go in to actually make an application or a service successful. And, and it's not just about what is the experience inside your IDE or at the command line while you're writing code. It's about you know that full sort of life cycle of how do you create projects? How do you deploy them? How do you secure them? How do you debug them? And so much of that stuff goes beyond sort of like, you know, a developer in their IDE, which is, I think, what a lot of folks think when you talk about developer experience. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of focus on velocity, especially, you know, and yeah. and you obviously want that and you want people to be happy in their jobs. But but that goes for the the ops folks, too. Right. Yeah. So. I heard about Kubernetes in 2015, but um, things started before that. The documentary talks about, I think at one point it mentions that Brendan had sort of written some scripts to take like a stab at like a first sort of prototype of what this platform thing might be. Um, were you involved at that point or did, did you get pulled into it later? Yeah, I mean, me and Brendan and, and Craig, you know, we were all working together and we were trying to figure out, you know, I mean, looking at sort of Google Cloud at that point, it was clear that GCE was necessary, but not sufficient to make Google successful in this space. And the the lock that AWS had on the industry was stronger than it is now. We have viable competitors here, you know, now. Um, but at that point, it was pretty insurmountable. And so our our overarching idea was like, how do we how do we sort of shake things up so that Google has a fighting chance? Because um, if we just go toe-to-toe, VM-to-VM with Amazon, 
there was a sense of like, we're going to grind it out and there, it's a long road to being successful. But if we can change the way people are thinking about cloud in some ways, and maybe do it in a way that like builds on some of Google's experiences and strengths, that's something that, that opens up commercial opportunities for us. And, uh, and then doing it as open source was natural because if it was just something that worked on Google, nobody would have cared. And so, um, so, you know, there were a lot of efforts, both in terms of trying to understand where to put our efforts and why, and then also just playing with the technology. So I think there was a general feeling between me and Brendan that, you know, I used to say that Docker is like sort of, you know, half a cute, half a borglet, right? The, the thing that sits on the, right? And some of our first efforts were essentially doing declarative APIs on top of Docker. Um, there, there's some code out there that Tim Hawken wrote in, in Python that I talked about at Glucon the year after Docker was an, uh, announced or, you know, um, which is essentially starting to build up the rest of that, you know, what became the kubelet. How do we actually have an agent that, it, you know, integrates with higher order systems? Um, so some of that work definitely started out early. Uh, Brennan wrote some of the first stuff in Java. And, you know, as we sort of went forward, I'm like, we got to do this stuff and go. It's, it's going <laughs> to, we want to have other people writing it. Java is not the, not the answer there. For that go, community go is still pretty early at that point right like yeah um i want to say that we thought super deep about that stuff but the reality is is that you know we didn't know what it was going to turn into but we definitely saw the energy of the people contributing to docker and definitely felt like go was part of the part of the magic there oh interesting yeah um you know, and my take on it is I looked at it, at, you know, at Mesos at the time also, and I'm like, you know, Mesos is all C++ typically. Yeah. And so, you know, you think about sort of like, what is the typical Java developer? How do they approach things? C++ is so unapproachable for folks who, you know, haven't studied the priesthood, right? Uh, apologies to Matt Klein and the Envoy folks. <laughs> but, like, but like Go, you know, was both a capable and approachable language that I think really created a welcoming way for folks to get involved. Now, Looking back on it, I think there's ways that, you know, Kubernetes used Go that maybe made things more complicated than they need to be. Mistakes were made. And I wonder if, you know, if, if Rust were where it's at now, we would have chosen a different thing. Rust still has a little bit of that, you can be too clever and write code that nobody can read to it, um, <laughs> that, you know, harder to do that in Go. But I think Go was, was part of the magic that, that made Kubernetes take off. Yeah. So... I heard about Kubernetes in 2015. Um, this was after the 1.0 release. Um, Kelsey was speaking at a small like tech conference here in Portland. It was probably like 100 people or something, right? And he gave the talk. You might have seen it or heard about it at some point where he was playing Tetris. And, and that was sort of his analogy for this new mm -hmm. world, right? Where like you as somebody who's operating these applications, you aren't worried about which server things are running on anymore, right? It's just a bunch of compute and a bunch of memory. These things are just resources and and the scheduler is going to just take care of all the magic. Is that um, when you were building the initial like Kubernetes, how, how much did you think about these, you know, which of these pieces you want to include and and how to look at this platform? I mean, so one of the lessons that I took away from building GCE was that the API is the thing. Yeah. And so our focus early on with Kubernetes was making sure that we had the right concepts so that we could express a lot of the deployment patterns that we wanted to express. And then, you know, 
what is the minimum set of capabilities that we needed to be able to include in the system to be able to do that? And so a great example there is, is, you know, pragmatically, like pods move around all over the place or not, pods don't move, but things get scheduled into pods and they get killed and restarted, like all that stuff with the, uh, the replica set, which was called replication controller at the early stuff. Um, what that means is that IP addresses are going to change a heck of a lot faster than anybody else does today. And, and then you look at Java at the time, it would resolve DNS and then never, it didn't respect TTLs by default. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's a nasty combination, right? Because now what you say is like, you use Java and Kubernetes, something gets killed and restarted someplace else. Even if DNS updates, Java is never going to notice that, right? That led to the service and, 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 and cluster IPs and the idea that are, are service IPs, right? Where yeah. you can actually, it was like, hey, we need a stable IP address for a, a set of pods that are super dynamic. And so things like bridging that dynamic world to the static world in as smart way as, way as we could was a key piece of, of deciding what was important. And then it was very much driven from, you know, providing that experience early on there was a lot of shade thrown around like the, the early versions of Kubernetes around then. We didn't target scaling beyond say like 100 nodes. And that was a conscious choice because we knew we could solve that eventually. But the thinking was, let's make sure we get the experience right because nobody's going to be using this past 100 nodes early on <laughs> anyway. Sure. Um, but, you know, but that led to, you know, a lot of people throwing shade. And so we eventually decided to focus on that. And that led to the first SIG uh, because we we sort of forked off a set of folks to start looking at that. And that ended up becoming SIG scalability. And that idea of being able to sort of carve off groups of people to focus on something led to sort of the way the project is organized now around SIGs. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, one of the things that leapt out to me personally was uh, like the liveness and the readiness probes, you know, <laughs> I think I think the service primitive was the thing that really kind of spoke to me, you know, again, because of that sort of role that I had. and. And, you know, I had been in this shop where we had figured out sort of how to do health probes with our Cisco switches, right? And so we had um, our, our apps would, you know, send requests to the Cisco switch and say, take me out of service now, you know, I'm shutting down. Um, and we had taken all this time to get that implemented, but then somebody would show up and they'd want to write something in another language and they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't use the libraries that we already had, you know, and it, it was always like reinventing the wheel. And, and the thing that stuck out to me was that we no longer were in that situation where we have to like litigate, you know, how these things should work or, or remind people or any of that, because it's just all part of the platform. Right. And there's no room to disagree about how it works. I think there's three lessons from that. I think, you know, first off is, um, Anytime you have something that's language specific, you're going to have a long tail of languages and it, it gets very difficult. I think there's lessons, things like open telemetry as people banding together to be able to say like, you know, there's going to be this slog to add telemetry capabilities to every language. Let's all do it once instead of each vendor doing their own thing. Um, so that's definitely one lesson out of that. Uh, I think the, you know, oh man, I do this. I have three things and then they escape me. <laughs> right one. Um but I think that there's there's definitely a um, oh man now it's escaping me it'll come to me <laughs> that's okay <laughs> sorry 
That's okay. I usually no. take notes. I forgot to write stuff down as that, no. as that stuff occurring to me. Totally fine. I think it's good that people understand that you're not perfect too. Oh, I, think- I know. I know what I wanted to say. So, so one other aspect there is that right now, when you write a program, what are the systems that that thing interacts with, right? And that being um, the underlying sys calls on the operating system. Um, one of the interesting things that you see with cloud, whether it be VMs or whether it be uh, Kubernetes is that we're starting to see that there's a whole set of sys calls that are off machine that actually help you to integrate with with uh, uh, um, with other systems, right? So if you're writing something on EC2, you can easily hit the metadata server, get credentials, and then talk to S3, and it's all very smooth. And so in some ways, S3 is another sys call that you can actually go ahead and talk to. So the set of tools that programs have to play with the primitives that the programs can depend upon fundamentally changes. And so the point of view, when you look at liveness and readiness probes, is it's this idea of like, hey, if you sort of configure this, this path for something to hit or this liveness or readiness probe, that's another sort of syscall or sort of connection between a program and the system. But the system is no longer the kernel. It's now this larger environment that includes things like Kubernetes or cloud services or what have you. Um, and the ultimate extreme of this is something like Lambda, where you know you have all sorts of things you can't do anything interesting with a lambda unless you're actually calling out to these sort of cloud syscalls to some degree. And then the last thing is like I think that point around um, um, conventions are super powerful, and I think this is one of the things that I enjoy when I program in Go is Go format. Right? Nobody argues about you know I'm a I'm a I'm a spaces person, but Go format does tabs. I'm like oh well. You know, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you know, oftentimes, and I, again, there's, there's, there's like, you know, a dozen ways to solve a problem, but, and there may be subtle pros and cons to those things, but deciding on the one way to solve the problem actually brings so much efficiencies that it far outweighs the, the individual pros and cons. And I think that speaks to Kubernetes in general, where it's like Kubernetes does a lot of stuff. You may disagree with how it does it, yeah. but having something that has sort of those off the shelf patterns so that you're not reinventing the wheel and mix, mixing and matching your own solutions, I think really elevates everybody in terms of having that common language and that common way of doing things. Yeah, completely agree. I've actually mentioned GoFormat before for the same reason. I'm somebody who did some time in the Ruby community, you know, and like uh, RuboCop, um, as, as folks say, ACAB applies to RuboCop too. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's just dumb, you know, to spend your time like arguing about how things should be formatted really. Um, and people get so passionate about it too. Um, yeah, I I think that one of the things that struck me too, when I saw that talk of Kelsey's and started to look at Kubernetes was, um, that you all had really, I felt like you really nailed like a lot of the good operational practices when you looked at the set of things that were in the 1.0 release. I mean, these were things that a lot of people were doing already, you know? Yeah, I think um, Brendan had a saying when we were doing the early sort of stuff with Kubernetes, which is, you know, everybody at that time, it was, you know, and I think he said this in the documentary, it was, we were waiting for the next project to come out and actually sort of nail this stuff. And so there's a real sense of urgency around getting stuff out there. But we also felt like, you know, um, he liked to say that, like, everybody has the same puzzle pieces. But because of the experience that Google had uh, on putting these things together, 
you know, we had the picture on the front of the box where other folks were trying to to put the puzzle together without the picture on the front of the box. Oh, that's really And I funny. think that's sort of like, you know, I think you see that a lot in Kubernetes because we'd, we'd sort of live this. So we were able to actually pick the right, the right things to, to pull together to, to hit a lot of those high points. Yeah, I thought it was very clear to me for sure. Um, you mentioned Mesos a little bit ago, and um, that to me is an interesting topic because I think that like at the time, you know, when Kubernetes showed up, um, certainly when the 1.0 came out, I think for a lot of people, if you were to have done a bake-off between Mesos and Kubernetes, then you would have probably have chosen Mesos, right? Because it was the it was the stable thing. It was the mature thing. Um, it had a lot of scheduling capabilities, all, all of these things. I think this comes down to that, you know, where I started, where the API was the thing with Kubernetes. And I think that's the reason why, you know, that was a philosophical differentiator versus Mesos. Um, people, when you were using it as sort of an application team working with Mesos, you didn't talk to Mesos, you talked to Marathon or Aurora or Kronos. Right. And those things didn't have a lot of ways to actually say, have something running on Marathon, talk to something on Kronos or vice versa, right? That these things were so you created these systems. It was a toolkit for building something Kubernetes-like, but there wasn't that commonality that you see with Kubernetes. And this only intensified over time because as you know, we made the conscious decision to focus on extensibility versus adding more features to Kubernetes, that led to things like CRDs and the operator pattern. And that's really given Kubernetes sort of a, you know, it's the second stage, right, of, of the <laughs> rocket, right? Um, and so now you look at Kubernetes and you're like, yeah, it does scheduling, but also it's a framework for solving all sorts of other sort of similar control plane problems in a way that, you know, that, that Mesos and, and Swarm and, and even things like Nomad were never set up to do. Um, and so we, you know, we kind of stumbled our way into it, but at the end of the day, the scheduler and the, the container scheduling it's only a part of, of what Kubernetes is. And I think that's, that's really given it a, a, you know, that, that second stage of, of excitement and success that uh, we wouldn't otherwise had if, if, if we hadn't focused on you know, extensibility and building sort of that larger community and ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I keep uh, referencing Kelsey, but you know, uh, I've seen him say so, so many smart things about Kubernetes and the space. And um, I saw him give another talk here in Portland at a little meetup years ago. And, he, he was saying even back then that like, this was probably like maybe 2018 or something. And, and he was saying that to him, Kubernetes wasn't even the interesting thing. It was like the things that people were going to build on top of Kubernetes. Yeah, no, I've had VCs like, hey, wh where should we invest in the Kubernetes community? I'm like, no, invest on the things that Kubernetes is going to enable, not, not necessarily Kubernetes itself. Yeah. So, so I think that um, if I understand the timeline right, I think that the 0.1 release shows up at DockerCon in 2014, and then yeah. DockerCon 2015 was the 1.0 release. And um, no, I think 1.0 was at OzCon. Oh, that's right, it was OzCon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't able to be there. I was on, you know, road trip with my family. So I, can't, <laughs> you know, I missed out on some of these sort of seminal moment, moments. But oh, no, th there was a party and I, I have it around here somewhere um, where the 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 drink tokens at the party for the launch party for Kubernetes were these poker chips with the Kubernetes logo on them. And uh, uh, people were like not drinking so they could save one of those as a souvenir. So that was kind of cool. 
I guess I guess they were pretty forward thinking. They um, uh, Tim did the logo, right? Tim Hawken. Yeah, he has an arts degree, um, and so uh, yeah, I think we were just BSing, and we did the seven sided logo ships wheel. There, you know, I think our marketing guy at the time said it's open source. I don't give a crap. He used more colorful language. And so there wasn't a lot of adult supervision in terms of doing the branding and the logo. And I think we, we, you know, we really lucked into a lot of that too. So this period between that DockerCon and the OzCon, there's some talk in the, in the documentary about, you know, people really kind of crunching during that period of time. Is that, was that your experience? Were you like sleeping at your desk and stuff or? Um, I was already, I think I'd left Google at that point. So I was already slowing down a little bit. Um, and I was staying involved, but not to the to the level of some folks were. But there was this there was this excitement and this urgency. And I don't know if you ever done like I did one of these like ropes courses team building exercise. I don't know if you ever done this where you get a bunch of people and there's like a light stick, and you're like, okay, everybody like balance it on your on your fingers, and everybody does that. And there's this tendency for the stick just to rise, right? It's because somebody does it a little bit, and then everybody else goes to catch up. And sort of like, you know, even sort of unintentionally, everybody challenges everybody to, to go. And I think there was a little bit of that happening where, you know, everybody was so excited. Somebody else would be, you know, would check something in and then they wanted to. And so it really became, you know, a really hectic time. And so there were definitely some efforts to say like, hey, you know, we're allowed to take the weekends off. We can <laughs> slow things down. We can, you know, but but there there was a lot of excitement and a lot of people pushing each other. I don't think it was intentional, but that's just kind of how how things kind of panned out in the early days. That's interesting. I think it is it is um, interesting to to think about, and this is one of the things that the documentary really did for me: the fact that this wasn't inevitable, inevitable, right? That you know, when people were working on this thing, there was a lot of competition, and people were, like you said, looking over their shoulders and not knowing, you know, which of these like many bets that were out there was going to be the one that was going to win. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk about, you know, I've referenced Kelsey so many times already, but, but I wondered if he would uh, maybe talk about specifically his involvement, like in those early days and what he brought to the community. Um, so Kelsey at the time when we launched Kubernetes was working at CoreOS. And so he did a couple of things, you know, he, like he does, he started, you know, getting involved with the project and, you know, he's never one to hesitate to roll up his sleeves and play with stuff. Yeah. And. And so he started talking, you know, about Kubernetes early on, even though it wasn't, you know, an officially supported or strategic thing for CoreOS at the time. Um, and in doing so, you know, we definitely saw the amount of excitement and involvement. And I believe, you know, outside of Red Hat and Google, Kelsey was one of the 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 first folks that we, you know, gave permissions to start doing stuff in the in the Kubernetes repo. I don't think we had sort of a official maintainer title, but like but we're like, hey, you know, and and I think, you know, number one, it speaks to to Kelsey just, you know, being able to, you know, just get involved and do stuff. But also, it, you know, our strategy for open source, because there's different flavors of open source, is that we really wanted this to be a community thing from the start. And so it's important to us to be able to let people in who didn't work for Google, who didn't work for close partners like Red Hat at the time. And it's 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 kind of serendipitous that it, it ended up being Kelsey. Um, he also did a lot to evangelize, you know, Kubernetes inside of CoreOS, and they they definitely had a a a big disproportionate early impact on the on the project. 
Yeah, it's funny. I think that when you look around at the community nowadays and you start looking at people's job histories, you know, there still are so many influential people who were at CoreOS or were at mm-hmm. Heptio. You know, those those people are everywhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like I, one of the favorite sayings of the community is like, you know, um, different company, same team, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you uh, and um, Craig went off to start Heptio. Can you talk a little bit about the thinking behind that? Like, um, you know, you you guys go and do that. Brenda goes to Microsoft, you know, Tim and Brian Grand and folks are still at Google. I mean, I was a little burned out from Google. And so I took some time off. Um, also, I think that there wasn't a great recognition at Google around what they had even, even early on with Kubernetes. Um, and, uh, you know, and I definitely felt like the room for me to have impact inside of Google around Kubernetes was not the same as it would have been if I'd gone off and done something different. Um, so, you know, I took some time, I explored a bunch of ideas and it was clear that, you know, Kubernetes was still growing, was, was, you know, becoming, you know, almost inevitable in some quarters. Yeah. And so it seemed like the perfect time to take Kubernetes places that it wouldn't naturally go if it was just being driven by, by, uh, say companies like Google. And our, our theory with, with Heptio and, you know, was Kubernetes is the start. What does it enable after that? Now, you know, the hardest thing with startups more than anything else is just timing. And so I think, you know, there's places where we assumed that getting super Kubernetes installed and running would become a solved problem with the various clouds. And it's <laughs> kind of getting there now, but there's still a lot of places where it's difficult. Um, and so we were focused on how do you build experiences and tooling on top of that. So early on, we were looking at things like multi-cluster and multi-cloud with, with Heptio um, and some of the products that we were building that we hadn't launched yet made their way into some of the thinking for, for what we did at VMware. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think our thinking there was we can bring Kubernetes to the enterprise, but also we can start building things on top of Kubernetes that enable, you know, developers and, and application teams to be more successful. And so it's not just about Kubernetes for Kubernetes sake. Yeah. I remember some of the work that, that Brian Wiles was doing, you know, where, where he was building things to make it easier to manage the clusters and, and stuff like that. And and um, I don't know, I was just uh, super impressed with you all when you started up and and um, you did a thing that I talked to people a lot, this thing called TGIK that, <laughs> um, that went through the time that you were at VMware. It just stopped apparently a few months ago. Uh, Nadir, um, you know, is uh, supposedly can pick it up, but he's been busy, but I think he wants to do oh, some stuff. So we'll see really? if, he, if we're going to see some more, but yeah. It's, de- it's, it's, you know, the TGIK stuff is definitely owned by, by VMware at this point. So it's, it's up to somebody there to, to pick some of it up. That's really interesting. Nadir's actually a friend of mine. He's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll, encourage him to do it. <laughs> I, I will do that. I think he might, he might listen to this. So Nadir do it. Um, <laughs> but, but it's actually something that I talk to people a lot and I bring it up a lot. Um, the phrase that I use a lot of times is that to me, it's like one of the best examples of evangelism that I've seen. And, and, um, you know, especially in those early days when you were at Heptio, right? Because, you know, you're there, you're drinking a beer, you're, uh, <laughs> kind of on the stream, you're playing around with something and like 
the pattern a lot of times was you pick up some new thing that you've never heard about, or maybe you've heard about, but not actually used. And as an audience, we get to see you kind of figure out how to use it, right? And so you're reading the docs and you're doing all of those things that somebody would do when they're first uh, approaching a project. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, you know, as a senior engineer, whether I was, you know, CTO title at Heptio or principal engineer at, at VMware, you don't get as much time coding as you'd like. And, um, and so it's kind of one of the trade-offs that you make is that your impact is usually through people. And so you write documentation, or if you do code, you're acutely aware that you can't put yourself on the critical path because other stuff will come up. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, it was like, Hey, I want to just spend Friday afternoon doing something technical and I might as well just broadcast it to the world. So it was really, you know, I was doing it for me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to sort of play with stuff and to sort of get my hands dirty, you know, uh, and, you know, and it did turn into that, that, you know, that evangelism or advocacy stuff. Um, but I think at the same time I was, you know, with Heptio, you're a small company, the role of developer advocate or evangelism it's still, even today, it's, it's an underdefined role. And there's definitely places where it's successful and not successful. And it's pretty fraught. And so I was relatively reticent to start bringing on somebody to play that developer evangelism role until I knew exactly what it is and what we wanted out of it. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's still an ongoing journey. Um, and so that was something that I think TGIK was like, hey, you know, I can do this job, I can learn about it, and then we can define what success looks like here in terms of bringing on other people to do stuff like this. And so, you know, that was that was definitely part of the thinking there. Um, and we didn't build a huge evangelism team at Heptio. I think it was like me and Nova were, were really, you know, it. And uh, yeah, and I still struggle with defining you know, what developer evangelism is. I mean, is. I'm, I'm a developer advocate and um, it means something different depending on what yeah. company you're working at. You know, that's just the way it is right now. And I didn't want to get into a situation where we overhired and then we had to be able to sort of realign people because I knew that would be painful for everybody and you don't want to, and anything you do with developer advocates, you're doing in public. And so, yeah, you know, absolutely, definitely was acutely aware of that also. Yeah, I, th I think that that vibe that you're talking about, though, where you were just doing it for yourself was was one of the things that made it so fun. And um, I feel like um, when I say I thought it was a great bit of advocacy or evangelism, I don't really even mean for Heptio. I mean, for Kubernetes, right? <laughs> that was my thinking. You know, we were we our boat, you know, our, our, our boat was tied to Kubernetes. And so if we made Kubernetes successful, if we made the community successful, then, you know, there would be dividends for everybody for sure. Yeah. So when the VMware deal got announced, I was one of the people, and I, I kind of have a feeling that I wasn't the only one who was really kind of shocked and surprised, right? Because I don't know, I was under the impression, you know, here you are, you've got two of the three people who founded the project. There's a lot of excitement about Kubernetes. It's I, I just saw you all heading to an IPO. That was kind of the exit that I expected. And, and then when it was VMware, which is a company that I thought of at that time, at least as not like super cutting edge, right? Um, I, I just wonder if you could maybe talk about the thinking behind that a little bit. I mean, that was one of the hardest decisions that we've ever made. I mean, you know, first of all, when you're a founder in a company, you feel a deep sense of responsibility to the folks that are working with you and that are going on that journey with you. 
And going through an acquisition, you're making decisions that will impact people's lives in some dramatic ways, and you can't really consult them on it. And so, of course, yeah. um, You know, and in some cases, you have to tell some white lies um, just because, you know, you're doing going through some diligence and you need somebody to like talk to somebody to review some code. And it's like, you're like, oh, we're doing this for our C round and no really (laughs) the acquisition. Um, so that was, it was a really, really difficult decision on a, on a lot of fronts. Um, the reality is, is that, you know, we had been in business for two years, things were going well, but you know, things don't go well always forever, right? We knew that there were going to be some bumps. There were going to be some ups and downs. And, um, and then from a financial point of view for both me and Craig and a lot of the employees, it's very easy at the point that we were at where you take on more money, but you take on more dilution, the valuations go up, but the, the real money terms don't necessarily change as fast as it would be suggested based on these, these big valuations. And we also knew, and you're seeing a lot of this now, is that money on paper is not the same as money in the bank. Um, yeah, absolutely. Even if you know, we had sort of you know, gone towards you know, further funding rounds in an IPO, you know, there was no guarantee that that would turn into to real money for folks. And it's part of that responsibility to the employees that we felt around that. Um, and then there's this question of like, you know, being a founder of a public company is not all roses. Um, <laughs> I think a great, you know, and the reality is that, you know, and I, I was at a VC event last night and talking to folks and everybody's like, you're going to do another startup. And right now my answer is no. And a big part of that is because it's a journey that, you know, our, our journey with Heptio through VMware was like five and a half, six years, but like that is as short as it gets, right? You do a startup, if you don't go out of business, right? I guess that's how it can be shorter. But if you don't go out of business, you're in there for eight to 10 years. Sure. And, and that is a huge commitment. And there's no practical way for you to sort of, you know, decide you want to do something else through that. Because if you leave, you mess over your investors, you mess over your employees, you really screw things up for people. Um, and so one of the, the part of the calculus for me, at least, was, hey, if we go to IPO, you're just extending that almost indefinitely. And you can see founders start to back away from those leadership roles. I look at Mitchell at, at, at HashiCorp, or eventually Larry and Sergey were able to extract themselves from Google. But it's a, it's a difficult thing to be able to do that. Whereas... One of the nice things about the the acquisition is that you know I I, I went to VMware. I spent my time there. I, I I tried to hand off everything. I gave it all, everything I had. Right. Tried to hand it off responsibility. But what it meant though is that ultimately there was an exit path for me to go off and do something else without leaving everybody in a lurch. So that was definitely I think some of the some of the thinking there for me at least. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know you mentioned that when you when you did leave VMware that that was already in the works before. The acquisition happened. What's that? The the the, the Broadcom the, stuff? Or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that 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 definitely uh, um, was interesting in terms of timing. But I was already sort of figuring my stuff out. Um, yeah. And then ultimately, and I just want to say, like, the mission of Heptio to sort of bring Kubernetes to enterprises was very much aligned with what we had heard from the leadership at VMware at the time, working with Pat, working with with the other leaders there. And so we definitely felt like we could continue to do what we wanted to do with Heptio at VMware. And so it really felt like a, like a win-win for us. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel looking back at it? Like, 
you know, Tanzu and all of that? I mean, uh, things get complicated. I think that, you know, there's definitely lessons learned in terms of what it takes to be successful at a big company. Pat leaving, the pivotal acquisition, the, the, the um, looking forward to the Broadcom acquisition. Those things all had, you know, pretty big impacts in terms of, you know, how the team was structured, what the goals look like, what the, um, what success looked like. Um, so I'm, you know, I think that there's, there's still a lot of work to do. And I think there's still a lot of good folks there to do it. Um, but the environment that sets people up for success and what success is, has been a little bit of a moving target, I think, as we've seen these different things happen. And I think that's definitely been a challenge. Whereas if you stay independent, you know, you get to define what success looks like for you, right? And so there is not, you know, as much of, you know, at least this was the term we used at Microsoft, strategy tax, right? You oh, yeah, yeah. Versus having to actually, you know, like, like, I don't know, would we have supported vSphere in the same way that we did under Tanzu if we weren't part of VMware? I mean, probably we would have supported it in some way, shape or form because it's a cool thing, but it wouldn't have been sort of a centerpiece of some of the stuff that we were doing in the way that it was when we were at vSphere. And how would that have changed things? Who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you all day, but um, uh, we got a bunch of listener questions. So I want to I wanna kind of work through some of these. Um, several of them. Oh, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we get into this sure, real yeah. quick. I got some time. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your journey from like being an engineer to ending up in those leadership positions and like maybe what you learned along the way there? Um, it's interesting. I always had this sense of not viewing myself as just an engineer. And I think as I became more senior, that sense definitely developed. I think ultimately I coach people that they should view themselves as business people with a strong engineering background. Huh. And so in doing so, what you find is, is you have to, you know, to be successful within an organization, you have to make that organization successful. And that's not just a technology thing. That's a people thing. That's a business thing. And so, you know, uh, I've always viewed, you know, and th this is one of those things that's easier to do at a startup than it is at a big company. But I've, I've always viewed the title or the role that I'm playing as a suggestion versus as uh, you know, a, a lane to stay in. Yeah. So I'm not afraid to weigh in on product management stuff, design stuff, business stuff, um, marketing stuff. Right. And that's why I think I did, you know, well with the developer advocacy. And I drove a lot of the early branding decisions around Heptio and stuff like that. And so, um, but yeah, I think being able to sort of make your own role and find the places where you have skills that go outside of engineering, I think is a big part of it. Um, and again, at a startup, I think it's one of the superpowers that startups have is that you can look at people and you can understand that they're not one dimensional. They're not just engineers. They may have other skills that you can bring to bear. Um, and it's much harder to, to sort of break that mold when you're at a big company. It's possible. You're, you're probably going to piss some people off, but it's, it's definitely, you're going to be bucking the trend if you have that sort of willingness to get into all sorts of different things. And so I think that's, fundamentally like not viewing it just as an engineering job i think is 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 at least the path that i took yeah that's really interesting um yeah i've worked at a lot of small companies and and i think that that's 
one of the things I appreciate, right, is, and I feel like, you know, we were talking about developer advocacy earlier. I feel like as a developer advocate, that part of my job is to sort of be a proxy for like the users and the community and stuff, you know, that if I see something going on inside the company that I think isn't going to serve the community well, or is maybe going to backfire even, you know, it's my job to kind of, you know, make sure people understand that. Uh, yeah, I, I like to view advocacy as a two-way street, advocating to customers and advocating for customers. Um, but it's also like, you know, does developer advocacy show up under marketing? Does it show up under engineering? Does it show up under product? There's no right answer, right? And there's pros and cons to each of those things. And I think that's part of the part of the the reason why it's a little bit um, underdefined. That's that's absolutely one of the biggest parts of it is where you sit on the org chart and what you're being measured on, right? And and people exactly. are are naturally going to do the things that you know get them the best metrics and make the book the best, right? So, listener questions. So uh, we had a a number of them that were variations of what would you do differently with Kubernetes now? And I want to ask you a couple of the more specific ones, and then maybe we could talk about it in a broader sense. Um, but Brian Lyles, who I know you know, um, asked um, if you had a chance to redo the Kubernetes resource model, what changes would you make? So for those not familiar, the Kubernetes resource model is essentially the the, the sort of general schema patterns that Kubernetes objects follow. Um, and, you know, we, we break it down to essentially metadata, like, you know, naming when it was created labels, uh, and then um, spec and status, right? So what yeah. do you want to have happen? What's really happening? I think um, I would probably create stronger um, patterns around who and when do these different sections get edited? Um, because I think what we find, we didn't have a good sense of the diversity of actors on these objects when we were first doing Kubernetes. And I think a great example would be the horizontal autoscaler. And so you go through and you push to Kubernetes something like, say, a replica set. And in that, you have like the number of replicas. And then you have this other component coming in, which is the autoscaler. And it goes in and it starts mucking with the number of replicas. And now you want to do an upgrade or you want to change some parameter of that, you can then go through and step on the stuff that the that the autoscaler did. And so you end up with different actors kind of fighting with each other. Oh, sure. The solution to this has been, you know, cube control apply, um, which is now move server side. And if you look at apply, whether it's client side or server side, it's really complex because it essentially has to do a three-way merge. There's yes, the stuff yeah. that's in the no, system. No, I've, I've read these docs, yeah. And um and I think, you know, I think we could have done a better job of creating structures to be able to support that um, in a way that had first class support in the API server. The type of thing like maybe, you know, the autoscaler has its own sort of layer overlay that gets composited on top of the spec. And so that way you can change your spec, but then the autoscaler spec will always take precedence over it. I feel like could have been better first class support. Now, server side apply starts to get at some of this stuff, but there's a lot of backward compatibility concerns that make it a little bit more obtuse than I think anybody would really like. Yeah. Um, and then another variation here was uh, Thomas, I'm assuming it's pronounced Gutler. Um, if you could start from scratch, would you use gRPC instead of open API? Um, I don't know. I think from an efficiency point of view, I think there's a lot to like about gRPC. I think as a project, I think gRPC is still finding its legs. It's it's heavily dominated by Googlers and the quality of the 
bindings for different languages and the generation for different languages can vary quite widely. Um, so I think this goes back to sort of, you know, grinding out libraries for every language is, is, is a hard thing. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, Swagger, RESTful APIs, those things are just, you know, you can do that stuff from Bash with Curl, right? And so I, you know, I cut my teeth early on in Microsoft working on the browser. And so I have an appreciation for that pattern of view source, muck with some stuff, you know, upload it, right? Like that level of obviousness and human readability is something that that I, I don't want us to to lose. And I think that mm-hmm. As you move to some of more of these, you know, more specialized binary protocols, it gets that much harder to be able to interact with it. So I think, you know, it's a hard call, but I think the 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 plain text nature of REST um, would would for me still win out over over the the potential efficiency gains with gRPC. What about um, kind of on a more meta level, like um, if you were starting Kubernetes over today, are there are there big choices you would make that would be different? Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier sort of like our focus on extensibility and things like CRDs was really sort of that, you know, the second stage of the rocket that really took Kubernetes to the next level. Um, We stumbled upon that. That wasn't super obvious to us at the beginning. I think if we were going to go back and, and, you know, hindsight is 2020, or if there was ever going to be a Kubernetes 2.0, I think taking, you know, having no built-in resources, having everything be a CRD, you know, really taking the sort of the distributed nature of the controllers not being, you know, being separate from the schedule or being separate from the API server. I think we would have taken that even further. And I think we would have, um, uh, we probably would have, would have made that be the system, the core system to start with, and then built everything as extensions on top of that. Um, yeah, I also think that there there's work that we could have done around getting things like identity and security, you know, plumbed in in some really deep ways early on. Um, one of the projects that I started between leaving Google and starting Heptio was was Spiffy, um, yeah. which I saw as sort of a missing piece here, a building block that ultimately I would like to see Kubernetes start to use in a deep way. Um, maybe that'll be my fun project. I don't know. But like, <laughs> I still think that there's like, like, I think we should have probably taken that stuff more seriously earlier than, than we, when, then we ended up doing. Yeah. Our back wasn't even in the 1.0, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the original version of Kubernetes had no auth, but our, our standard setup scripts, which, you know, was a pile of bash would essentially set up um, I think Nginx is a proxy in front of the API server with some password stuff going on there. So at least it wasn't wide open to, to whatever network, but you know, that was, that was definitely below min bar where, where I think just <laughs> early on. I mean, I, f- I feel like this is sort of the history of, of these systems though, right? Because if you, you got to get something out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if you look back at early Unix, you know, and even Linux, that stuff was like wide open. Right. And yeah. it's the, it's the cleverness of the attackers, you know, and and the advancements that are made on that and that that end up driving the the better security as things mature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, a couple other questions real quick. Um, Ross, um, who I know you know, um, um, you worked with him at Heptio. Yeah. Uh, what are you most now. yeah, what are you most proud of regarding Heptio Tanzu? What would you have done differently if you had the chance? 
Well, I answered on Twitter. I think like definitely the people. I think so much of the fun of of doing a startup is is you know you bring on new folks and it feels like you have new cylinders in the engine and you can go faster. And yeah. everybody, you know, and and there's you know, I try and live my life through the lens of like finding positive some situations where you want like you bring somebody new on, you want everybody to be like, "Oh, I'm so glad you're here." Like you can make us so much better and like, you know, I'm so happy to see you, which is like in some ways a unique thing for small companies. Whereas a lot of times at big companies, you know, somebody new comes in and you're like, well, are they going to take my thing? Right. Are they going to, you know, I have my charter. Are they going to impinge on my charter? And it's, it ends up becoming a zero sum type of thing. And so, you know, being able to build that team, bring the people in and have that, that sort of, you know, Hey, we're all pulling in the same direction type of feeling is, is something that, I really valued, and I think we did did really well. Um, I know the second part of his question is, "What do I think we would have done differently?" <laughs> um, yeah, you maybe already that, covered that some. Yeah, no, but I mean, for Heptio specifically, what I would say is that we did a lot of open source projects, and I think one of the things that you know the hard lessons that I learned is that you can have a smart person with a good idea, but if you don't surround them with a team, they kind of they kind of it's easy for them to go off the rails. Mm-hmm. So you need to create, you know, it's, it's, it's the unit is not an engineer with an idea. The unit really is a team um, because they play off of each other. They keep themselves on the straight and narrow. And you need to have that, that sort of interchange of ideas and opinions and, you know, to, to keep any sort of project healthy. And so um, there were places where we'd have an open source project and we'd have one person on it or two people on it. And it just yeah. wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough to, to keep that thing on the, on the right path. Then we had one last question from um, at Cloud Native Boy on Twitter. Um, he's a friend of the podcast. Uh, why is uh, RBAC so hard to learn? <laughs> is, is there an easier way to learn it? So, um, so when we were doing some of the the IAM stuff for Google Cloud, uh, the system that they were that they wanted to build on was actually built for Google Plus and Docs. Right, it was internally called Zanzibar, um, and there's a company building a startup around some of these ideas also. And the idea there was like you have a resource, and then you have a bunch of ACLs on it in terms of like who can do that, what, what with that resource. And when you're talking about a doc where you want to say like, hey, this doc is shared with these ten people, that makes sense. Same thing with posts and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things that makes this hard in cloud infrastructure is that you often want to write policy where you're not talking about a single resource. You don't want to go up to every resource and actually set who's allowed to do that. And so ultimately, it's a problem of set theory. You're like, I wanted to find this set working across these things, and then how do these things stack together? And it becomes a, a, you know, a very powerful system because you need that power to deal with things in bulk. Uh, but in doing so, it can be something that can be very difficult to reason about. And I don't think anybody has nailed, you know, IM or RBAC or whatever for these types of systems in a great way. Because you don't have strict hierarchy. You don't have, there's always overlapping concerns. And so whether you look at, you know, you know, IAM in the cloud or something like, you know, AWS IAM or whether you look at RBAC, all of these things are really powerful and take real time to wrap your head around to be able to use them. That's not saying that there aren't things that could be improved, but I think it's fundamentally a very, very difficult problem because the, the, you know, the problem demands it. 
I, I am going to throw out one resource. I'll link to it in the show notes, but um, Lee Capilli um, from VMware actually gave a really good talk about this, about our back at um, the KubeCon that just happened and oh, pointed out, yeah, yeah, pointed out some ways where like things maybe work a little differently than you would intuit them to work and had some kind of pro tips. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, I want to thank everyone for the listener questions. It was uh, really, really great to have so much participation. And of course, I want to thank you so much for coming on to chat with me, Joe. This was really great to kind of relive the 20, <laughs> mid-2010s or whatever it was. Container wars. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, um, I'm kind of happy that we're past some of that, right? It's a lot easier to 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 feel like we're all on the same team, you know, in a lot of ways now. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I will link to your Twitter. Um, do you, do you have that Mastodon account yet? That yeah, I it's to, on, or? um, I'm, JB at hackyderm.io. This is, this is, uh, that's, Nova's, uh, Nova's. That yeah. she's starting. so we're all playing with that. And that's a it's interesting experience to try and sort of look at that alternative. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I really wonder like what impact this all might have on the community, right? Because their Twitter really was a place where a lot of folks did gather and exchange ideas. And it, it feels to me that like, if it blows up, people are going to go off in all kinds of different directions. Yeah, it definitely feels like a lot of uncertainty right now. But yeah. but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was a great conversation. Okay, thanks, Joe. KubeCuddle is created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Mon Placer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 